Welcome to Strategy International, a podcast produced by PodMTL that brings you insightful conversations with experts from all over the world on topics related to international relations and policy, security, defense, environment, and much more. And now, your host, George Santrizos. Hello, dear friends, and welcome to another episode of the Strategy International podcast. Strategy International, for those who don't know, is a global think tank that brings together great minds from all over the world that reflect, analyze, uh, discuss, uh, and research different topics of global interest, such as international relations, policy, uh, strategy, defense, the economy, and much, much more. You can visit strategyinternational.org for all information. Uh, and of course, speaking of great minds, we have another great episode uh, today. We have Dr. Eleni Gavriel with us. Uh, she is a lecturer in international economic law and human rights at the Department of History, Politics and International Studies of the Neapolis University in Paphos in Cyprus, with specific expertise in international investment agreements, the promotion and protection of foreign investments and the protection of human rights. Eleni, thank you so much for being on the program. Thank you very much, uh, George, and the whole Strategy International team. Um, today, I would like to uh, to discuss about the protection of foreign direct investments. This is, this is very this is very exciting for me. Uh, and just before we get started, I'm excited first and foremost because, like you said, we're going to talk about foreign investments. It's a topic that I personally am not very much familiar with. So I'm excited because this will be somewhat of a learning experience for me, as I'm sure it'll be for a lot of the people listening or watching. Um, I want to start uh, from the for, for just very basic, you know, for people that don't have PhDs on the matter. Um, you know, what does it mean when we talk about foreign investments? You know, what is this concept? What does it mean uh, more specifically? What falls under this umbrella? Is it is it investing in global markets, um, you know, investing in government bonds? Is it more in the private sector? For example, I come to Cyprus and I invest in a chain of restaurants or retail stores. Um, or is it more in the public? Like, for example, you know, investing in in government led you know, initiatives and exploring natural resources or government subsidized uh, incentives in developing the high-tech industry or green technologies. Um, explain, just give us a little understanding, a basic understanding of what, what we talk about when we're talking about foreign investments. Okay, so let's start from the beginning in order to understand what we're talking about. Uh, in general, international investment law is the field of the law that uh, regulates relations between states and investors, usually multinational corporations. So when we discuss about foreign direct investments, we talk about a very specific uh, kind of project, let's say. It's not the same as portfolio investment. And it, ha it does not have a specific uh, definition, a uniform definition, but based on the case law of investment tribunals, um, foreign direct investments have some specific characteristics. Uh, these are found in the case of uh, Salini versus Morocco in 2002. So first, uh, foreign direct investments uh, must show uh, substantial com commitment, contribution. So you must have uh, personnel, funds, huge amounts of money uh, given to a specific project. Also, we must have a medium to long-term duration. For example, a project for two, three years is not considered 
foreign direct investment. We're talking about projects that uh, last uh, 20, 25 years. Also, there must be an assumption of risk because we are talking about long-term projects. So there must be specific risks that the, the investor faces. And also a significance for the development of the host state. Uh, There must be a contribution to knowledge, to uh, expertise towards the host state. So we are not discussing about portfolio investments or small investments that you and I may make. We are talking about big projects in the the extraction uh, field, uh, the extraction of uh, natural resources, this kind of course of uh, projects. Why, uh, you know, explain to everyone why uh, why it's important for countries to have foreign investments. We this is a promise that we hear all the time when we have uh, elections coming to a country. Uh, usually, politicians are saying that we are going to attract investments, vote, vote for us, and we are going to bring money. We are going to bring investments into a country. Uh, This is true. Uh, Investments uh, play a vital role in the economic development of a country. Uh, They are very crucial because they can help economically, but also socially a country. They can bring uh, stability. They can provide expertise to the population that is working in the project, Um, education, infrastructure. So they are indeed very important for uh, countries to attract uh, a lot of foreign investments and bring money to the country uh, and as a result to the population as well. It must be a very complex um, process because obviously for someone that, uh, for someone to want to invest, like you said, it has to be more of a long-term project. There has to be a long-term vision with the risk assessment and everything that follows. And for a foreign investor to go in, obviously there needs to be the right uh, context, uh, politically, uh, economically. So there's a huge responsibility that falls on the government's shoulders to make sure that the climate uh, in the country or in the state or wherever their uh, their uh, whatever level of government um, is um, is unique for these investors to have trust in you know the, the the whole infrastructure that comes behind this investment. Exactly. When uh, a corporation wants to make a project, to make an investment, they will look into each um, country to see how uh, favorable the conditions are for them. There are countries that are a lot more risky because uh, they may violate the rule of law. Uh, There are incidents of bad governance and there are countries that respect the rule of law. They have very transparent and and good governance uh, bodies and infrastructure. So to this end, they will be more attractive uh, because it gives the confidence to the investor that they have less risks, let's say, less danger for their investor, the investments to be violated, for the rights to be violated. So when an investor wants to make an investment and proceed to a, to a project, they will uh, look into the risks of, it, of each country in order to understand what exactly they have to face when they go into, uh, when, they, when they proceed with a project. Risks are threats. 
And each country has different threats and risks that it faces. So it is uh, the laying down of risks is connected to which country they are going to choose. And these risks are uh, are related to which country specifically. We have several uh, kinds of threats and risks. Uh, We can give some examples uh, if you want. So usually they are connected with the political environment of a country. Commercial risks are, uh, are, um, let's say, taken by the investor. So when we are discussing about risks, we are looking into the political risks, change of government, uh, political instability, this kind of incidents. So uh, some cases, uh, some specific categories of risks is, for example, political hostility, which is usually ideological. We know that uh, some governments are ideologically against foreign investments, for example, some communist uh, regimes. Uh, so they will, uh, these will constitute a specific threat to the investor because when they proceed with an investment with a country that it is against in general or against uh, foreign investment, they will have huge huge uh, danger of their um, property being expropriated. We will discuss about it uh, later, about the specific case. Uh, other type of risks are nationalistic concerns. In a lot of cases, uh, countries want to, want to governments want to take over specific business sectors to keep them national, and they would not want foreigners um, being in specific business sectors, um, water privatizations, uh, telecommunications, uh, several uh, investments. Uh, in other cases, um, governments may want to change the contracts that the previous regimes were ma- have made because they are against it. They believe that they were made as a uh, as uh, in uh, by means of corruption. Um, so we can understand how many dangers and risks foreign investors face when they decide to proceed with a project. You know, it's interesting because, and it reminds me of a story that I'd like to share because you're talking about circumstances that are probably common in countries that have unstable governments and regimes. You mentioned about communist countries, um, but there, there, there's 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 a lot of these issues that also happen in countries. For example, where I'm from here in in Quebec, I remember a specific story. There's the government between 2008 and 2012 had this huge incentive in developing the northern part of Quebec, which for everyone you know that doesn't know, Quebec is very rich in natural resources. And there was this incentive in bringing all these foreign investors into Quebec so that they can develop the northern part. Obviously, we're talking about natural resource extraction, uh, road infrastructure. There was a whole tourism industry development uh, project as well. And everything was going well. It was a huge. We're talking about hundreds of billions of dollars uh, in investments. Uh, And in 2012, the government switches. uh, And there's another party that comes into power, which is more you know, it's the party that wants to separate Quebec from Canada. And uh, everything was set. Everything was ready to go. And they just could not agree 
on the dividends or the formula of these foreign investors? Who's going to take what? Uh, do we profit from the natural resources themselves or do we just get paid for the work and then the rest stays in Quebec? Like you mentioned about nationalization. Uh, so that formula couldn't work out in, in a matter of 18 months because that's all that that government uh, stayed in power for. Everything crumbled. The entire project fell uh, through the cracks and it just disappeared. Uh, an incredible project like that. So um, it's not only in countries where you have uh, unstable government, um, even in a country like Canada, that's, that, that's considered to have, you know, uh, dynamic uh, government structures. You have, you know, these um, issues that happened and uh, you're, you're talking about this and it brought back this story for me because people still talk about that. It's uh, we usually um, connect uh, risks with developing countries. However, as you said, risks are also found in developed countries in the United States, in Japan, in France, in Canada, as you mentioned. Uh, there are risks for investors everywhere. And this is why it is important to mitigate those risks and minimize those risks. It's uh, it's, you know, very common for politicians to come to our country, we, uh, invest to our country, but then after the investment, uh, usually things change and uh, there is a lot of hostility against investments. So we, uh, it, this is why it is very important for investors and investments to be protected, to be safeguarded. And this is how the whole investment law uh, field has developed and uh, grown because it was very important to protect the protect investors and investments because they are in a vulnerable position against the host states. Uh, this is uh, this is the basic of investment law: the vulnerable posi position that uh, investors and investments are, and uh, this is why it is recognized that they must be safeguarded and protected. These uh, speaking of which, the, uh, you know, the, the safeguards that are in place, are these unique to each country? For example, if, you know, I'm interested in investing you know, in, in getting into foreign investments, do I have to comply with each country's specificities or are there international sort of agreements that each country ratifies and that way it makes it sort of uniform? Uh, across the globe, where, whether I invest in the U.S. or Canada or in Europe or whatever, there are certain uh, foundations that are there, uh, legal foundations that are there that um, that are known and there are kind of generalized. The uniqueness of investment law is the fact that we do not have a central treaty uh, or institution as we have the World Trade Organization, for example, in the context of trade. We have uh, bilateral investment treaties, over 3,000, and each one uh, is different. However, there is a specific basis. There are specific standards of protection, which are found in almost every, uh, every investment treaty. These are uh, protection from expropriation, the fair and equitable treatment standard, the protection from discrimination on the basis of national treatment and most favored uh, most favored nation treatment, and also the full protection and security. So these standards are the ones that we found in almost every investment treaty uh, signed by states and uh, investors.
Okay, let's go over those in detail. What 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 does what does this mean? Um, so when we're talking about bilateral multilateral treaties, um, what do we have in this in this category? What are we, what are we looking at? Bilateral treaties are the treaties that countries sign uh, and where we find the standards of protection. And on the basis of these treaties, we can understand how high the protection of an investment is. So the most basic standard of protection is protection from expropriation. Uh, it is uh, one of the oldest uh, concepts uh, in uh, international law because foreigners were always worried about the fact that their property is going to be taken over by states. So expropriation is the taking of uh, property. It is a well-recognized rule in international law that a property cannot be taken without compensation. Uh, however, we must say that, of course, based on the right of sovereignty, countries have the right to expropriate property, to take property. However, only based on specific conditions. These conditions are that the measure must serve a public purpose, for example, in order to protect the environment. Uh, the measure must not be discriminatory against the specific investor. Uh, also, it must follow the rule of law to have the right to a fair trial and to appeal, for example. And also compensation must be given. The compensation must be prompt, effective and adequate. So expropriation can be taken, however, based on these specific uh, conditions. I have a question for you, uh, and maybe people watching or listening uh, may have a question based on what you just said. We saw, um, you know, over the last year with a conflict happening in Russia and Ukraine, how all these countries, um, you know, made this, you know, this alliance in sort of, you know, quote unquote, punishing Russia with uh, different sanctions, etc. But we saw in different countries, these governments seizing uh different russian assets whether they be businesses or you know whatever they may be does that fall into this category or is it something completely different it falls uh, into this category if it was a uh, foreign direct investment mm -hmm. however the um, still the, uh, the the sanctions regime is a uh, is another regime mm -hmm. it is uh, it is based on the uh, Security Council uh, decisions, on the European Union decisions. But when we have uh, the seizing of uh, uh, Russian property, which is con constitutes an investment, yes, there may there, it may fall under this category. And Russian corporations, if they feel that their rights have been violated, they will bring a, a claim against the specific host state, for example, Cyprus or Greece or Canada, in order to ask for compensation because mm -hmm. they want to claim that their rights have been violated. All right. So, what can happen in this in, in this in these circumstances? Say a government seizes, you know, foreign property or foreign assets, can it then sell them off or keep them, or how does it work? Usually they keep them, but this kind of expropriation was found mainly in the 60s where uh, governments took over of the entire property of a multinational corporation. Today we have new forms of expropriation because governments do not want to show that they are hostile against investors. Right. So they have found other ways you know, to cover up a bit of uh, violating investors' rights. 
So what they do is usually they raise taxes uh, to a great extent or they change the regulation, they do not renew permits. And to this end, the, the project cannot continue because it does not have, uh, let's say, a permit to continue working. This is still expropriation. This is indirect expropriation. And it's all the new forms that we see today happening. So direct expropriation is a rare phenomenon today. There are still some cases in Venezuela, for example. But we mostly see it through the raising of taxes and changing of regulations. Mm -hmm. And when this happens, the investment may lose entirely its economic value. And of course, the investor may ask for compensation at an investment tribunal. When we're talking about tribunals or arbitration or anything like that, what law uh, takes over? Is it the host country or is it the investor's uh, uh, country's laws? It's the uh, it's based on the international agreement. Okay. So whatever the agreement says, it will be followed by the uh, by the tribunal because uh, arbitration does not go through national courts. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is why it is uh, very friendly towards investors because they do not have to go to the national courts, which may be uh, a bit hostile or against them. They go to a specific arbitration tribunal with arbitrators that they may have chosen or not. And it gives them a very flexible and quick way of settling disputes. Interesting. Interesting. Um I want to talk a little bit about, um, you know, different strategies on protecting these investments. Um, how 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 does that like? How do both host countries as well as investors make sure that what they're going into is uh, is safe and it will be protected? <clears throat> investors will uh, investors will look both parties will look the contract the contract can be negotiated the international the agreement can be negotiated so it is very important to have uh, an agreement which is um, which has been negotiated and agreed by parties um, in a lot of cases they rush into especially states rush into the agreement because they want to proceed with the investment However, it is very important to have um, an agreement that lays down in contract way everything so they know what to expect. The more transparent the framework, the better it is for both parties. In, in your experience um, uh, and in your knowledge, obviously, are there countries or regions that are more favorable for foreign investors than others? Obviously, we mentioned, you know, hostile uh, countries that have uh, uh, unstable governments or uh, uh, questionable you know, regimes. But aside from those countries, are there any other parts of the world or regions where these conditions are so transparent and so easygoing that it's more favorable than other countries? It's uh, countries of the European Union, uh, developed countries in general, and actually there are uh, some. Um, if someone would like would like to look into that, uh, there are some leads online where you can see specifically uh, how uh, safe the environment of each country is. So there is a rate, 
And based on this rate, it shows you how safe or not safe it is to do an investment in a, in a specific country. For example, Cyprus, which is considered a safe country. However, due to the occupation of Turkey, it has a bit uh, higher risk mm-hmm. because of the situation. Right. Uh, or if, if in a country there are a lot of uh, demonstrations and riots, this uh, brings down the rate of uh, of a country. So ca- the most stable countries in general, uh, politically, socially, they are the safest as well. You mentioned in some documentation that you sent me while we were preparing for this um, uh, for this podcast, uh, certain terms. Uh, with respect to the protection of foreign investments, I'd like to go through them maybe so that we can explain to the people listening or watching what they mean. Maybe not every single one of them, but you mentioned about, um, um, we spoke about protection from expropriation and fair and equitable treatment. I think everyone pretty much understands that. But when you're talking about full protection and security, what does that mean? Uh, this is one of the most interesting uh, standards of protection for me. Uh, it is um, a, a bit debatable uh, standard. We will see why. So the full protection and security standard, as the name says, it protects investments and investors from physical harm, also legal, but we will focus on the physical, which is more uh, well-developed in international investment law. So we it mostly concerns cases where riot groups, uh, armed groups, or police authorities, the military, will physically harm either the investment or the investor. Mm-hmm. Uh, incidents of violence, incidents of looting, uh this this kind of um this kind of uh, you know situations so it uh, it mostly concern on how the how the investor uh as a person and how the investment as a property are protected by incidents of violence so the host country has to guarantee this sort of protection and security Yes, it's not an absolute. Uh, it's not an absolute um, standard. So this means that not in every case that the investor or the investment will be harmed, uh, they must give compensation to the investor. However, the state organs must do whatever they can to protect physically the investor and the investment, and it also it, it relates both to um, state organs, police. And also third parties, for example, rioters or looters. Hmm, interesting. Uh, okay, what about the national treatment uh, standard? Or no? uh, the, national the national treatment standard and the most uh, favored uh, nation standard are connected with the principle of non-discrimination. So according to these two standards, all actors must be placed in an equal position uh, so they're not being discriminated against. We know from uh, the early of the years that um, countries tend to discriminate against foreigners. This is a this is an, an often phenomenon. It also takes place in the context of investments. So, based on the national treatment standard, the uh, there must be equality between uh, competitive. Uh, 
competitive equality between national and foreign investors. So two investors, a national one and a foreign ones, a foreign one that operate in the uh, same operation, in the same uh, business, they must be treated in the same way by the state. Interesting. And what's the difference between that and the most favored nation treatment? This is uh, the most common question by students. <laughs> it's uh, usually a you know a point of confusion. So the most favored nation standard uh, ensures that all parties are in the same position. So it relates to uh, how a foreign investor is treated in accordance with a third foreign investor. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, I understand. But essentially, it still falls under the same category of having equal uh, treatment. And not discriminated, discriminating against the foreign investors. Okay, interesting. Um, what else do we need to know about foreign investments? Uh, I, one um, relevant topic, uh, and also a bit debatable, connects with the full protection and security standard. It is uh, how investments are protected during armed conflict. Oh, interesting, yes. Because uh, conflict is ongoing in the world. We see also the case of invasion of Russia in Ukraine. So it is important to understand how uh, and if investments are protected when an armed conflict takes place. There is not a specific answer to this. Spoiler. uh, Spoiler. spoiler. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So... Let's start by saying that investment protection is not automatically suspended during armed conflict. Uh, This means that countries still have the responsibility to protect investments uh, as far as they can. So when we have an armed conflict, it does not mean that investors must not be protected by states. Uh, However, in some cases, protect uh, standards of protections are not applied in the same way as uh, as before and some treaties have the so-called war clauses which limit the protection to a certain degree uh, because it is understandable that during armed conflict during uh, times of violence it is not easy for the states to respect the standards of protection um and the most challenging topic is what happens with uh, aggressors uh, third states we said that the the state of the investment has the responsibility to protect the foreign investments by physical harm but what happened when the aggressor is a third state? For example, in the case of uh, Ukraine, of uh, Russia in uh, Ukraine, we have, uh, let's say, a Canadian investment in Ukraine, and Russia is the one that harms the, the investment. So what happens then? There is not a definite answer to this. Different rules of international law may be applied, uh, it is very challenging uh, and it create, creates a, a, a lot a lot of challenges on how to protect these investments. So we do, we do not have a specific framework in times of armed conflict. Uh, nevertheless, the what we have to remember is that uh, 
rules of, uh, of investment law do not automatically suspend at times at uh, conflict. And there is a case actually uh, similar to this, it's uh, AMT versus Zaire, where the tribunal uh, concluded that um, the Zaire had the obligation to protect the foreign investment from uh, armed forces. So there was still the, the, um, the responsibility to protect the investment. So, so in a case like this, for example, where they have that responsibility, how is that responsibility conducted when the government is, you know, for example, a, a hostile government or a you know a dictatorship that doesn't necessarily recognize um, the international tribunals or you know whoever does the 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 arbitration in this case. Um, the case will go to the tribunal, to an uh, investment tribunal, because for, for a fact, the investor will want to claim their rights. Uh, however, uh, if, the, if the award, if the decision is against the host state, the host state has responsibility to pay the, to pay the award, the compensation. Mm-hmm. They must have thought about that before going into contract, maybe. Um but after that, if they do not pay the compensation, no corporation will go into the country and make an investment. Right. It's what we said in the beginning about the favorable investment climate. Mm-hmm. And today, countries that in the past were against foreign investment, so they have changed their view concerning them because they understand how important they, they are for the economic conditions of a country. Uh, just so we can wrap it up, I don't want to take a lot of your time. Is there any case uh, either that you know of or perhaps even that you've worked on that was so important uh, in its legal aspect that created a certain jurisprudence or a, a precedent and uh, it, it kind of shook perhaps the foundation of uh, of these treatments, uh, of these treaties or that pushed, you know, a sort of reevaluation of, uh, of how to conduct... Uh, you know the 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 legal foundations of uh, foreign investments. One uh, case that I find very very interesting personally uh, is the case of uh, Philip Morris versus Uruguay. The Philip Morris, the tobacco company. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we said that the countries are under the obligation to respect investment treaties. In this case, uh, 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 Philip Morris made an investment in Uruguay where uh, in the tobacco field and uh, Uruguay is a country with very high percentages of uh, smoking so they decided to take some measures uh, in order to protect the right of the population to health you know all these uh, signals that we find in um, On the cigarette- packages, yes. packages yes exactly and uh, Philip Morris uh, claimed that claimed to the tribunal that Uruguay was uh, violating the investment treaty uh, because uh, this led to an economic loss of the company mm. uh, because these measures uh, amounted to economic loss. Usually, in previous cases, the tribunal will go with the side of the investor. But in this case, uh, it's uh, one of the unique cases, the tribunal uh, took the side of the host state 
the World Health Organization also um, took part in this uh, in this proceeding, and they found that Uruguay had indeed uh, the obligation to protect the right to health of its population. Uh, and this means that it was uh, it was there was a reason for take, taking these measures. And so it sided with the side of the state, which is also a very small country uh, in comparison with the corporation of Philip Morris. I think it's very interesting because it shows them the way forward in the field that other aspects must also take into account, not only the economic aspect, but also environmental rights, human rights. So I think it's uh, it's very interesting. Oh, no, for sure it's very interesting because this basically opens the door, and I don't know how long ago this was, but it opens the door to other to other sectors as well. For example, health, um, uh, food, uh, food security and food. We're talking about food health, like, for example, you know, all the fast food restaurant chains uh, and all this sort of um, uh, investors that have perhaps a negative uh, impact on uh, on uh, on citizens health. Um, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. I mean, do you think that eventually it'll spill over into these other uh, industries as well? Uh, until now, uh, because tribunals not have to follow the previous tribunals' cases, mm-hmm. uh, it's uh, it's not very evident uh, that we see this kind of approach. However, it is a step forward, uh, you know, a, a different uh, a different scenery in the field. That's why it's also interesting for me. A uh, very fascinating conversation, uh, Dr. Uh, Gavril. I, I want to thank you again for the time that you took to share your knowledge with uh, our listeners and our viewers. Uh, invite everyone again to go and visit strategyinternational.org for every, for all the beautiful things that are being done over there. Um, where can people reach out to you? Where can they follow the work that you do? Where can we lead them to? Uh, they can find me, in, find me in the site of Naples University Paphos, where I teach, all social media, uh, LinkedIn, uh, and reach out to me uh, to continue this conversation. Fantastic. Thank you so much again, uh, and thank you to everyone for tuning in. We'll see you all in the next episode. Thank you. Thank you very much, George, and the whole team. Hope to see you again soon. Definitely. Looking forward to it. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Strategy International podcast. Produced by PodMTL for Strategy International. Feel free to subscribe, rate, and review it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere fine podcasts can be found. This podcast is made for Strategy International Limited Cyprus. All copyrights reserved. This podcast, audio or audiovisual, may not be reproduced, duplicated, copied, sold, resold, visited, or otherwise exploited for any commercial, scientific, educational purpose without the written consent of Strategy International Limited and its legal representative.